Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our impact series featuring Elevate customers implementing transformative change. In this episode, industry colleague and former Elevate leader, John Kenton, interviews KWM's Michelle Marnie and Elevate's Pratik Patel. John, Michelle, and Pratik discuss structured innovation and executing an experimentation phase to work through steps and firm up a process that includes transition to BAU. I feel incredibly fortunate to be sitting here with Michelle Marnie, Executive Director of Innovation at King of Malisons, and Pratik Patel. Vice President of Innovation at Elevate, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation around all things innovation. First of all, when looking at the subject of innovation, it's probably worth agreeing what innovation actually is. It's a term that's widely used and abused in the legal industry. So, Michelle, what's your definition of innovation? For us, it's change that has a positive impact. So, we specifically have it as a broad term. We don't use the word technology in that definition deliberately, and it's really about embracing change and looking at the impact it makes. That's interesting. So you don't focus on whether it's an internal change or an external change or client-facing, just any change. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Look, we've used the broad term because we feel like there is so many opportunities for innovation and there's so many definitions of it. And for us, we think it can be impactful from so small improvement all the way through to digital transformation. And so deliberately, we've been quite focused on having a definition that sort of embraces all of that. And it's also a bit of a call to action for our people, which is you don't have to be in the innovation team. You don't have to be working on a project. It's when you see something, it's an opportunity to change it. You drive a positive impact. So I think it means that it's quite achievable by anyone. I'd like that broad definition. I think sometimes the idea of innovation can be a bit of a, a hurdle for people. They think they have to come up with something that's bigger and better than anything before. So sort of bringing that down to something sort of small and doable. I really like. Pratik, how does that fit with the Orvium innovation at Elevate? I love that definition, especially with the positive change. Michelle, something that resonates with me when I hear that is positive change typically then focuses on the customer. Just having those words in there draws people's minds to how can I bring a positive experience? I also agree that innovation is something that can be very, very simple. I like the idea of making it simple, making it about positive change. Another thing, Michelle, that strikes me when looking at KWM is that you put a degree of structure and rigor around the process of innovation. Whereas a lot of people would normally say, you know, innovation, it's free thinking, it's whiteboards, it's post-it notes, you can't tie me down. Give me a background on why you've taken that structured approach and explain what that approach is. Absolutely. So plenty of whiteboards, plenty of post-it notes. We've been doing this for a while and one of the key barriers to change and for people to really adapt and try new ways of working is often scepticism or it's worked for me previously. And so rigor and structure, what that brings is, if you like, a more scientific approach, evidence-based, we document everything, it's all about learning. And our structure and processes are all designed in such a way that every single process has outcomes that are measured. We're very data-driven. So before we undertake any innovation, we're very focused on the hypothesis, what's the client problem to solve. We really focus on the problem. So for us, Structurally, we have a process we follow. We have an experimentation framework that we use. We do documentation around what comes out of that. And then we, of course, share those learnings. It's not one of those processes where it's hard and fast, but what we have got is these known and frequently used processes so people have comfort around the cadence rather than it's everywhere. 
But my observation would be lawyers struggle with it because it's so ambiguous and you don't solution jump and it meanders and it's very messy. That is exactly what it needs to be. So I suggest don't muck with that. But what you then need to do is have an overlay of some form of structure around that. You need to give some form of structure because it gives lawyers a lot of comfort. I think you're right. Innovation can take inefficient and unintended turns when not structured in the right way. In that process, there's some form of entry criteria and exit criteria. As we talk to both law departments and law firms on their journeys of innovation, we also hear that there's confusion around who to go to when they have an innovation. If they've defined it a certain way, especially in a law firm, I think part of that process is also educating them on where to go for certain types of innovation projects. I get plenty of emails to validate that People think perhaps they should raise it with me first when the word innovative is in any way mentioned. So, so I feel confident on that one. I think, look, I'm very, very lucky in my role. I report to the CEO. So we're a separate team, structurally, separate team. And that team is separate to technology or knowledge management or other groups where it might be under in other firms. It's very clear that it's a separate designated team. That doesn't mean we don't work with all our colleagues, and of course we do, but there's very clearly that team is focused on innovation and, in fact, transformation. And so we have a robust communication plan. We've got quite a lot of material that self-serve. We're always sharing our stories. When you say are people confused where to go, I think, one, structurally, it needs to be clear. So for us, it's a separate team that will absolutely get you started. We'll tell you whether the idea has been done before. We'll triage the idea with you, get you up and running. But the second piece is there's lots of signals within the organization of this is where you go. And those signals are really important. To pick up on that structured, unstructured approach, you have these various steps. I'm sure people who are listening to this will be kind of struggle to work out how does that look? Could you provide a bit more detail on, on what that process looks like? It's eight steps broken into four and four. And so the first four we democratize. So everybody in the organization sort of gets involved in them. We have these missions and the missions are three key if you like, strategies or focuses or areas that we're driving after. And so the missions are very clear. You can understand what it is we're trying to do. And then we do a scan, which is whatever you're looking to do before, if you've got a problem before you start, you deeply have to understand the problem. So we undertake a scan to understand that and understand the market. Then we jump into the challenge. What is the actual challenge to solve here? We see a lot of people not loving that third stage. The most important stage, this is where the magic lies, in my experience. And then we ideate. If you ideate without understanding the problem, you actually won't get great outcomes. You've really got to narrow your focus. We then move into the back end, which is where the innovation team heavily get involved. And this is around the shortlisting. This is using viability, feasibility, and desirability to really understand there is the selection and the shortlist from ideation, what we should be focusing on. We then create an experiment. So we're a bit nuts on experiments. So we love an experiment, the data collection and focus around experimentation model. And then we have subject to the experiment is positive or negative or proves our hypotheses. We then go into an implementation and then we do a promote and a communication plan around it. Absolutely fascinating. It appears the first four steps are centered around the problem. And the next four steps around the solution. So our subject matter experts, you might call them lawyers or attorneys, are really great on that first section. And we really need them heavily involved. And it doesn't mean they don't work on the second section because they're absolutely running every experiment with us. Every experiment has our attorneys or lawyers on it. So they're really important, but it's about deeply understanding the problem with them because they've got a lot of knowledge around that. And then the how might we test it and validate. We really leverage our skills to make that a lot easier for them. And a lot of them get the learning as they go through it as well. I got involved 
with you, Michelle, on, on Project Rutherford and you engaged us in the experiment phase. That was quite interesting for us to sort of see part <laughs> of the process. Perhaps you can provide a bit more background on, on how that came about. Yes. When a legal team is working on a process or a way of working is what we would call it, that perhaps isn't tried and tested or we very much tested, we would be an innovation team would work on that. And so they go into the legal team and work with them. We were very lucky. We had a project, really complex project, fast-moving project, very cost-focused client who really was keen to do a very large piece of work in a short period of time for their board. We had a scale challenge. We had a cost challenge. And we had a very, very challenging deal that we were trying to put together at the time. So there's a number of things that were coming together. The partner reached out to me actually and said, look, is there a whole different way we can do this? Because based on those constraints, you can't get time, cost and value quality all at the same time. We had a conversation around what we could do with this transaction is perhaps use some tech. So we've been using quite a bit of AI for contract review and we've been doing that. But what we didn't have was the scale of which we really needed and the cost base which we were looking at. And so we connected with you, John, uh, with the Elevate team. And so we ran an experiment and not surprisingly, the innovation team actually put resources onto the matter. And I think that really helps to work through each of the steps. It's really helped take all the pressure off the lawyers. If there's any challenges, you can quickly go, well, let's, how do we iterate? What does that look like? What are we learning here? And it allows you to really form up a process as you go through it and gives confidence, I think, around there is quite a bit of diligence around the process that you're running. And so I think that process worked remarkably well, I have to say. And the team is involved from the start of the transaction. So we pitch it and we design it with the legal team at the beginning. We then put it onto the matter. We run it through the matter. We then do, not surprising, a debrief and experiment report. And then we actually work to make sure we're fine-tuning the learnings that came out of it because there's always there's some learnings. So we take those and codify those. And then the next step, which is really interesting, I think, John, you've probably seen this, is when the next transaction comes in with a similar archetype, we no longer run it. So what's really interesting is we have a BAU solutions team, which we use our ALT team, which are fantastic. And so they now front deal and we shadow the deal. So we do a number of these deals where we're in the shadow, making sure it's a really strong handover, sharing all the information, making sure they're taking it on. Because now it's gone from an experiment that's been validated to a BAU. And I think if you just step out, you'll drop. So you really want to make sure you do a really strong handover. And then our ALT team now run transactions with that archetype and run them very successfully. And I think we just apply that discipline, even though others might find that unusual. I think we've kind of found it works really well. I don't know how you found it, John. It was very noticeable from our side, the hypercare of the innovation team, having set the process up, which is always really useful when you're first starting to work on a large and complex matter. But the thing that really struck me was that transition from the innovation team into BAU was something that is quite rare in my experience. And making sure that the experiment actually makes it through to the day-to-day fabric of the firm. That, that really stood out to me when I, when I saw that. I think that's really important to have the trust with other parts within your firm. So when you hand it off to a BAU team, they're structured quite differently and their skill set can be different and they don't know all the ins and outs. And every experiment has so much learning that you probably don't even capture because it's just, you know, you're just learning it on the job day in, day out. So making you transfer as much of that across, much as possible, is where you get the success, I think. You mentioned something about the problem definition. And I think that's fascinating because what we've learned is that it's not an easy job to identify the true problem or the job to be done. We have our hypotheses about why we think a particular innovation exercise is valuable. Maybe it's because we think it's taking too much time. We think it may be too costly to do something. 
It may be that it's not being handled in the right way. Therefore, we know there's some innovation there. But when you get into that problem definition, how's that experience with lawyers? Because I know that they're closest to the problem. But are you going through exercises to help kind of really narrow down on what we call the job to be done? Most of my team are multidisciplined in that most of us have got Lean or Six Sigma. We're all project managers. We've all got change experience. We've got some development. There's quite a collection of skills. I actually think in the problem definition piece, we use often a fishbone diagram for those practitioners in the audience who kind of have thought about how might you really get to the root cause analysis, which is what is the real problem to be solved here? And then we very much focus on the jobs done framework, focusing on the net, what is the job we're trying to achieve or do here and why is it occurring in this way? I would also say just on that definition piece, I would never rule out observation because observation provides an extraordinary amount of data. And so often when you see people avoiding things or having workarounds, that really helps with that problem definition by deeply understanding the problem and getting a really good definition and testing that. If you do that in the right way to validate, you will observe in the wild lots of these things that are happening where you're like, ha, I agree, really important. The other piece is the experiment piece. We tend to see a lot of interest to invest in something that there has been a problem identified. We've done it so many times that we know that there's a credible investment somewhere. And to your point, you don't really understand whether you have the right problem and jobs to be done or that you truly have solved the solution until you experiment. You learn so much just in the feedback from the teams that are working on it, as well as the stakeholder who's trying to deliver it, as well as from the customer who actually has a say in whether we've actually solved the problem or not. But I see far too many innovation exercises go from problem to be solved to direct implementation, where I think your journey map makes a lot more sense. I agree, Pratik. I love that focus on the problem. I spend a lot of time working with firms who are looking at inventing a solution, and I'm not sure they really understand what the problem is they're trying to solve. It's called the innovator's dilemma. It's actually a thing. (laughs) And really easy to fall in, in love with your solution. Really easy. And there's a sunk cost bias that comes with that. There is politics that comes with that. There is pride that comes with that. There's a lot of human elements. So that's why experimentation is really important because once you kind of head down a path, unless you've got rigor around it, it's really hard to change direction. The process being one of the most valuable points around innovation, but the process also comes with patience and what we'd kind of call in the legal market as a resistance to change. Are there things that you've done that you've seen worked just in terms of helping the legal teams come along the journey as you walk them through the process? I think the problem with innovation is that it's quite nebulous and conceptual. And so it's really hard for people, lawyers in particular, who are really busy in their day jobs to be innovative. You're moving from right brain to left brain thinking. You know, There's a lot of going on there. By having an experimentation model, we apply it to quite a lot of things. So for example, new legal tech goes through it at major matters. We use that model quite actively as a way to de-risk, educate And to your point, work through the change resistance as we go through it. So the first bit we would do with our lawyers is do some desktop research on any kind of experiment before we start, which is, is this the best problem to solve? Has it been solved with the right techniques? Then we do an identification, say, okay, from the desktop research, here's the things we're going to identify. So let's say we pick a a tool or a way of working with Elevate, pick an example. When you select that, the next thing we do is a first pass review, which is a quick check around. How is this going to play out? Like we just test and really spend quite a bit of time focused on the design of the experiment. That's the step most people forget. So for that first pass review for us, what we do is we really design it and say, how is this going to run? How is it going to work? What data will we get? 
So we really spend the time understanding what will the outcome be. So let's just play this out in different ways. What are we going to get? If you get no data, this is not a good experiment. If you don't get the right involvement, who do we need involved? And then we do the approvals. We're focused on the approvals. All the experiments are shared with the various practice team leaders so they know what are we testing in their practice team and what does that look like? And they get regular updates on that. And then we run the experiment and they're always time boxed. To your point about how do you manage change, it's a clear time boxed activity. And I think that's critical experiments where they just meander and have no start and finish. Really hard to get momentum, focus from your legal teams and get outcomes and learnings that you can share. Also hard for people who are on the sidelines to kind of remain interested. So what you want is your firm to be engaged and interested in what you're doing. When this is a very long project, it's hard for people to do that. So you've got to think about. And then the last bit is a number of key statements. One of them is around is our learning objective met? What needs to be true? And we'll have a series of statements that need to be validated. And we validate it. And so the lawyers find that really interesting because it's very evidence-based and they're in that process. So then we create a very detailed experiment report, which is a thing of great beauty. And, you know, the lawyers write that with us. So for how does this feel, they will say, actually, this was great. This wasn't great. So it's not like it's all red roses and everything was perfect, but here's some things you need to know about. So we're sharing that learning in a way that's very actionable. And I think when change is laid out as transparently as that, the lawyer will say, I saved time here. This was great. It took me this much time to learn it. A lot of the uncertainty is pulled out because there's a lot of that being articulated in a way that you can feel more comfortable. And I think bringing it to as concrete as possible really helps for people to work out what is the new change going to be. Every experiment for us has a report. All our reports are published on our intranet and they're linked to whatever product you're using. So you're able to see what were the findings, who was on the experiment team, what saving was there, what did they find, what worked, what didn't work. I think that helps in just making it real rather than the conception of, you know, this will save time, save time and these three activities and this is how much. Yeah. And I know one of the things we often are challenged with on an innovation team is this differentiation between an innovation project that is structured and that produces, in my view, multiples of ROI because it's done in the right way. And what I'd call on-the-fly innovation, which is serving our teams who happen to be in a certain matter situation, project situation, looking for a very creative way to release the pressure on a particular challenge that they have. And really differentiating for the folks who leverage these different practices, when to use both. I think there's a discipline around that in and of itself. I feel like a lot of the requests that we get into our innovation team, or if you're maybe a practice manager that has to support a practice of law, I think they'll say, but how do you solve for those rapid fire situations that I often feel like I get? And I know here at Elevate, what we tend to do is help them organize the situation first, being able to see the problem, see the situation, and putting people on a path where the problem doesn't seem as big and or complex or complicated as it is. But I'd love to hear your perspective on it too, because you probably get a flavor of those in the firm. Probably a flavor is an understatement, but what do you do when that kind of situation comes about? It does come in a number of different flavors. I think if it's at the pitching stage of matters, we get involved in a lot of pitches. I think that's ideal, I have to say. So when someone's pitching and saying, hey, we want to do something differently here, the conversation isn't we want to do X, it's we want to do different. And that creates a very open narrative, right? Rather than a closed one. And we're saying, well, here's some things that are similar to that we've done. Here's some things you could try. You can have much more of a dialogue around here's an approach you might want to take. I think when you're midway through a matter, you know, you're really looking to tried and tested solutions because you can't add, in my experience, further stress and more ambiguity onto a situation that's already high stress. 
I have not seen that work well in my example. So what I would recommend is if you're going to add a layer of new ways of working, which we know as humans, when you change a behavior, there is a load to deal with that. You need to make it as de-risked and as proven as possible. So something you've never done before, probably not a great idea to try on a highly stressed, large matter. So you need to be really cognizant, I think, of what is the operating environment for that team that you're trying to jump and help. Sometimes, to your point, I think you, you spoke really well about critique, sometimes having a valve where you can look at stuff and validate and say, no, actually, you're doing that great. Maybe we need more people. Maybe we need to do it differently. Maybe you know, you're tweaking things. But validation is also quite important where people are really trying to work through things. There's also this more is more that sometimes I don't know if you guys see this, but we'll just throw more people at it. And anyone who does any kind of resource management will know there's diminishing returns on more is more. That concept actually doesn't work. So it's making sure the right people are doing the right jobs. I think you probably found that too. Somehow, sometimes that can really shift up a problem or a way of working where you're suddenly going, oh my God, that's made a huge difference because we've just given the right people the right jobs to be done. Yeah, that's interesting, Michelle. So I imagine you get more requests coming in you can possibly cover. So how do you handle the, thank you for that suggestion, but no, we can't get to that right now. There's definitely a resource scarcity issue in that there's always more ideas than resource to solve. Just because you have loads of ideas doesn't mean you should do them. I think there's sometimes this kind of tension around people fall in love with their idea. And I kind of akin this to as a mother, you know, if you show your baby pictures to people, you, know, you always think your child is gorgeous. And I'm not suggesting other people's children aren't gorgeous, but it always looks so much more attractive to the eye of the beholder. And I think ideas are a bit like that. You kind of fall in love with your idea. So we get all sorts of flavors from, hey, I've got an idea. Can you guys look at it? Usually when you have an idea, no good deed goes punished, we get you involved. And so that's a good test, right? How committed are you to the process and like? We actually have a runway. So unfortunately, we do get full and we only run so many experiments at any point in time. And so we will have a backlog for Agile orientated. So we'll have a backlog of things we're going to get to. Believe it or not, one of the key resources we use, I think nearly every day, will be our what have we looked at previously? What ideas have we looked at previously? What tech have we reviewed? What they're constantly going back so that the resource scarcity issue is being managed. And I think without those sort of really basic tracking systems, which are boring, I know, you spend your life redoing and, and we just don't have the luxury of that. So we're quite driven around keeping all that record keeping, believe it or not, in a way that all of us in the team can jump in and say, actually, we know the answer to this. We've seen this, we've done this, you know, really making sure you're kind of liberating. Looking at K2M, you're around like 300 partners spread out globally. Law firms are famous for being change resistant. Is that how you try and steer 300 partners across the globe in one direction? It's a bit of a challenge. They trade on their personal reputations daily. And so you can understand someone who, when you de-empathize and understand the problem, they want to give the best result to their client, to their partner, to, to the firm. And so when you're looking at that as a starting point, this change resistance is usually based in I want to make sure I'm going to get it right. I'm time poor. I want to make sure you know, it's a good outcome. And so a lot of the stuff and the points that we've been talking today have been about how are we signaling that, that these aren't waste of time. So one of the reasons why we do these experiments the way we do is because once an experiment's done and we say go or no go, if it's a go, you can stand behind the rigor. And if you want to use any of these things that have come out of our experiments, you will absolutely get a positive impact because we've de-risked it and verified it for you with so much rigor that you can be confident to stand behind it. That helps the change conversation rather than, I try these things that don't work. You know, There's lots of that kind of level of immaturity around what you're delivering into the practice. 
if you've actually got that. And then the second piece I think that's really important is who's sharing the knowledge or the information about that. And I've kind of alluded to it a couple of times. I've got an amazing team, extraordinary, very, very lucky. Most of the stories we try to get our partners and lawyers to tell, you know, and they'll share them and they tell the experience because it's really good for a peer to hear from another peer how they experienced it, what they found scary, what they enjoyed. Nearly always you'll have a lawyer say, oh, it was really amazing. I couldn't believe that it did X, you know, and that was their insight and really hard to get that out. I think when the innovation people say it, of course, we think it's great because we do this for a living. But when perhaps a sceptical peer says it, people are like, Interesting. Does that resonate with you and driving change in in organizations? Absolutely. One of the questions that came to mind, and I think a lot of people will be interested in, is how do we measure positive impact? If they're driving their own innovation and they're trying to demonstrate the value of that innovation, what categories are we using to say it's positive impact? In some cases, we hear that it may be financial impact, but in a lot more cases, we're finding that it's a piece of it. It is not the driver for innovation. So, Michelle, I'll ask you and maybe I'll share a little bit, but um, I'd love to ask, you know, what metrics are you using to measure the positive impact in your firm? Yeah, so it will depend on when we actually design the experiment or when we go to put something in place. We use a multifaceted approach. So we say, does it create less friction for the lawyer? And so that's an impact which is not financial. It's around ease of use, and I get that. But this is adding more frictional complexity or is that, you know, so hard to get your head around, you know, really, really looking at the empathy piece around or the adoption and ease of use piece in a way that's really thinking about friction and how to make it really easy. So that's one of the measures we have. Certainly, we do look at for everything we do, but it doesn't always apply, time measures, risk is always there. Does it create, does it de-risk, does it create a better outcome for us? Can we actually augment what lawyers do is probably another measure for us on impact. I think the trouble with legal is that on any given day, you know, legal activities go from being wildly administrative to wildly complex and require extraordinary judgment all within one activity. So they're sort of very much combined or commingled. If you can make those wildly administrative you know, activities more automated and easier to do, that means those that are legally complex, you can spend more time on. So looking, one of the measures for us is around you know, augmentation. Where is it fitting around that? Whether it says what it does. For us, impact is also about reliability. And so is it 100% reliable every time? Does it work? We do count as a team. What we count the number of experiments we run. We A number of go, no-goes. We certainly do. Number of workshops delivered. Number of people trained. On our legal tech, we track all our number of uses and showing increased use around that. So we're pretty data-centric, I have to say, and we report on all that quite transparently. Yeah, that's fantastic. We do try and track back within our NPS scores, a specific question, are we innovating for you? And that's for the customer. So we get some feedback. You know, Are we asking the right questions to find the right problems? Are we actually executing projects that show innovation? So we're trying to get some satisfaction curve around our focus on innovation. We are actually tracking also the number of innovation projects. So we think it's more of a volume metric, but it is still representative of how much investment you're taking in the actual practice of innovation. I think we're hearing a lot more of this concept of reprioritizing lawyer time to the right activities. And so one of the metrics we're running, we're trying to find the right word for this, but it's how much time have we displaced back to lawyers? for the priority of activities that they'd like to spend their time on. But these aren't easy to track. And I think part of where we are is just trying to identify in our world, right? What are the value points of innovation? And I think there are some financial metrics that we're going to have to track as well, which are how much 
dollars we're spending on innovation as a percentage of our company revenues and costs. We tend to not look at it that way, but I think it's being mindful about the fact that people need to know that there is a cost to it. One of the things I would say on that metric is it's harder to track revenue than you would think because we will often have what we call indirect revenue. We work on a legal team to work something through and that revenue through is rightly to the um, practice team. And so there's a lot of indirect revenue that you create and profit you enhance. And so I think it is quite hard to track, but I do agree it's a really important measure. Well, thank you both for your time. I think it's been really an interesting conversation. I guess I'll just ask one more question before we head off. Michelle, what's the, what's the sort of innovation or change sort of that you see coming next that has you most excited for the future? I think for me, probably the most interesting piece is moving more to a self-service environment. So law has been quite focused on sort of white glove, sort of valet type services historically for very, very good reason. And I think what you're starting to see is some really good quality tech. So I think when you see some of these really great self-service techs that are using AI to really continuously improve the outcomes that they're delivering, I think that can really move the needle. And why that's so important, I think, is any of us who focus on effort versus outcome, there's always this latency because you're waiting for someone to come back to you, you're waiting for the answer. Business cycles are increasingly trying to shorten and increase in speed. And so if people can serve in real time and get an answer in real time at the beat that they're running, that's a significant impact that has both to your organization, to the client, to your people. And so not waiting for things to come back. I don't know how many of you spend time waiting for replies to emails or waiting to say, you can check back in on it. Has it been done? The ability to self-serve and move on means all our people are enabled to run at a velocity, which is really of their making. And why that's really interesting is I think when you move to digital, you know, these agile teams that really are moving at that pace is actually increasingly important. So for me, I think it's really linked to self-service and velocity go together if it's done really elegantly. So I think that is probably for a service industry like law, a really enabling technology. That would be my final comment around what we should be striving for. Excellent. And Pratik? Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you, Michelle, for having me today as well. And I would just say to take a slogan out of the market, just do it. And I think that resonates, Michelle, with your point of view as well. I think as people begin to innovate, they will get to the different maturities that they'll need to get to, but they will never get there unless they make the decision to innovate. So just go do it. Great. Thank you very much. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. Thank you.